Welcome back to America's Talking. I'm Austin Berg. I'm so pleased to be joined today by Stephen Perkins. Stephen serves as the Vice President of Grassroots Strategy at the American Conservation Coalition. Welcome, Stephen. Thanks so much, Austin. It's a pleasure. So scientists overwhelmingly agree that the climate is warming. Correct. True or false? True. This will be like a deposition. True. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and that, and true. we were talking about the Alex Jones trial a little bit before this. This will be exactly like that. And Mr. Perkins, uh, do these scientists believe that humans are the cause of this? By and large, yes. And uh, are they the cause of this in the form of excessive greenhouse gas emissions? Certainly. Okay. So given this, where do you think the American Conservation Coalition differs from, say, the median climate action organization in terms of your solution set and your strategy for how to address that? Sure. I, I mean, so not to be too inflammatory, but um, you know, I, I, I think that the big differentiator for us is we're focused on on action. We're not focused on performative activism, dumping manure in front of the White House, littering in rivers, and calling it climate action or gluing ourselves to oil paintings. Right? We believe that if you believe that this is an issue, uh, if you claim to be an environmentalist or or a climate activist then you're doing a bigger disservice uh, to the movement that you care to th- that you claim to care about if you are doing these outrageous things that bring nobody onto your side. No one is convinced when you block them uh, in traffic from getting to work. Uh, no one wants to to come over to your side when you do that. And so we're focused on, you know, on the policy side, common sense policy, not just this far left or far right policy that is just divisive and has no chance of passing, but a realistic policy that ultimately empowers local state governments, landowners, farmers, ranchers, outdoorsmen, individuals, right, in their communities to do the things that they inherently know uh, are right to do. Um, but so oftentimes the government either gets in the way or oversteps. Um, and it's because a lot of this inaction that we've seen from the government that people feel hopeless, but we're, we're here hopefully to provide hope to people. So yeah, I think that makes total sense in terms of the difference in tactics, in terms of the actual solution set that you're putting forth. I guess I kind of think about it like, I'd be curious your thoughts on this. A, you have a matrix, it's four by four, the y-axis is sort of like the sexiness of the policy or how much media hype it gets or how much you know hoopla there is around it. And the x-axis is uh, its efficacy and actually getting towards the goal that you just talked about. Um, what's something with the most hype that's least effective and what's something with the least hype that's most effective? The most hype and least effective is, is some of the one-size-fits-all climate bills that we've seen, such as the Green New Deal, right? This idea that we just need to pass this framework, even though we're not going to specify exactly what the framework is and all of our emissions will go away and we're going to create all these jobs and all this stuff. It gets great media attention because it's easy to sell. It's certainly a, a, a good for a messaging or a communications team. Um, it's never going to pass. And, and we need to just be frank about it. It's never going to pass. Um, and it doesn't actually have specifics of, of how we get there. A lot of it is social. It's not environmental. Something that's less sexy, but would be efficient, is planting a trillion trees, right? And and yes, this is not, planting a trillion trees is not something that's going to solve all of our issues. But it's something that 
is such a low hanging fruit and would do a huge deal to take carbon out of our atmosphere and do that year after year. Um, trees are obviously one of the biggest carbon sinks that we have on this earth, uh, other than the ocean. Um, and, and what's interesting when you look at that, right, President Trump, for despite all of his faults, you know, he, he did support planting a trillion trees. And climate activists came out and said, I can't believe that's his climate plan. That's so unrealistic. He thinks that we could just plant trees and get rid of this issue. Became a, a big thing. President Biden announces that he's going to plant a billion trees. And climate activists are saying that he's so brave for acting on climate. He's so wonderful for proposing realistic solutions we could get done today. It's like, let's give people credit where credit's due. Let's, 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 you know, 90, over 90% of Americans agree that we need to plant more trees. Let's do that. And it shouldn't matter who the president is that, uh, that, um, that proposes that. Like, that's something that doesn't get a lot of coverage, but would be highly effective. On that issue of deforestation and reforestation, that seems like as a group that focuses more on sort of these market mechanisms for improving climate outcomes, that seems like something that there's been a lot of disinformation on. So that this idea that there is a mass deforestation of the world, when in fact, it seems like the evidence might suggest the opposite, that as places become more prosperous, they're, they have more uh, tree canopy and coverage than they have ever had. And maybe, and I think I may have even seen that we currently have a record amount of that, at least in modern history. Could you talk a little bit about that sort of debate? Yeah. The, the, the unfortunate thing is that there's just so much doom and gloom around some of these issues that the truth is hard to get out there because it's not as, as fun for some people to talk about, I guess. Um, but yeah, I, what we've seen is that as countries and economies become more advanced, and become more prosperous, um, their economies become cleaner, and uh, their uh, conservation efforts increase. Right. So, um, you know, we, one of our partners they, they say that that um, uh, um, you know that, that economies that are more wealthy become more greener and cleaner, which is certainly true. Um, there's frankly a lot of misinformation out there about a whole host of environmental issues. One of those which we try to combat is, is about nuclear energy, right? This overwhelmingly safe form of energy that gets a bad rap because of what happened in Russia or what happened, uh, you know, in, in Japan or things like that with old technology, but it's safe. There's zero to, you know, almost zero waste. And it's, it's again, one of those things that I think the majority of Americans know is the right thing for us to do, um, but because of the fear mongering out there that set us back decades. As someone whose responsibility it is to get people engaged in taking some kind of meaningful action themselves um, individually or in their communities with a group of other people, do you find that it's difficult to get people engaged on something like nuclear or planting a lot of trees? versus an organization that is easily able to align people around perhaps, you know, a green new deal or some kind of, um, let me think of like another, uh, ban banning oil and gas or something like that. Right. Or, or banning drilling. Is that a challenge for you? Well, I, I would say, you know, we have different audiences or us versus an organization that may do that. And, and I mean, I'll, maybe just brag and be biased and say like our audience is just a little more common sense and, and understands that, 
um, it, it's not going to be these massive overhaulings of our society that's going to fix this issue. Um, you know, when, when, when we go out into our branches across the country, and we did this this past um, this past spring and, and, and last fall with our Rooted in America campaign, which the, the crux of that was, let's go out and plant trees. Um, our branch members loved it. They felt like they were doing something productive because they were doing something productive. And at these events where we plant trees or where we, you know, clean up parks or things like that, um, it very rarely comes up some of the more political stuff. I found that you can have a very, let's say someone on the, on the far right and the far left come together to plant a tree. Um, they're just happy to be doing something productive. Like the politics doesn't come up with it. And it's a truly bipartisan issue. Um, I mean, it, it is difficult, I, I think, to get past for our generation, younger generations, where there is a serious climate anxiety. I mean, people not wanting to have children because of climate change, not feeling like they themselves have a future because of climate change. It is hard to get past that. But our mission is to is to continually, um, just as much as you hear the negative, we need to be even more vocal about the positive and about the things that individuals can do. And so that's what we try to do through our branches and through our events. And um, we try to get people involved in a, in a productive way. Stephen, how much do you see Europe as a bellwether for the future of climate policy in the United States? Yeah, it's a good question and, and something that we've been looking at a lot recently, especially given the, you know, look at the Russia-Ukraine war and how that had such a effect on, on countries such as like Germany, right? where when you have such a reliance on bad actors like Russia or, or you know, some, some of the countries in the Middle East that produce um, energy, when there's such a reliance there and, and you, you kind of hedge your bet and you do like Germany did where they're shutting down uh, nuclear power plants and things like that, um, eventually that comes back to bite you. And, and we're seeing that and that's very unfortunate. But we're also seeing good things, uh, like the fact that France is, is uh, very rarely would I give France credit, but I'll give them credit for the fact that they are, um, they're, they're putting more nuclear facilities online in the UK, they're doing a lot of offshore wind and, and solar projects. And so, um, there's a lot of different things happening in Europe, but I, I think the biggest thing and what's important for American climate policy is to, to realize that America has a, a, a special you know, penchant for independence. And when we rely on other countries for our energy rather than producing it here at home in a safer, more environmentally sound way, it just sets us up for, for, for bad things to happen, like we've seen with gas prices this summer. But more importantly, the traditional energy production's happening, whether it's in our own backyard or not, right? So it, for all the people who applaud the president for um, for you know, uh, getting oil and gas production out of the U.S. and, and instead uh, relying on um, South American countries or, or the Middle East, it's like it's still happening, right? We're just not seeing it with our own eyes. So suddenly that's okay, and it's happening in, in countries that have worse environment, you know, very bad environmental or no environmental standards. I would much rather have that happen here. Uh, where we do have standards and where it provides jobs for our people and 
uh, and, and where we don't have to be dependent on them. So Europe is is an example of what happens when you put all of your eggs in a basket. So, yeah, I was really curious about what you just said in terms of exporting oil and gas into other countries. Like when ACC looks at how we should treat traditional energy versus, say, nuclear, wind, solar, through what lens are you viewing that? Like there's national security concerns on the one hand, like should what, what should be getting subsidies and what shouldn't? Should nothing be getting them? How should we how should a federal or state government be, be treating each of these different energy sources? Well, I think it, it, it and, and I'm glad you bring the state and local, it, it all depends on, um, on where it's happening. Right. Um, so Florida has done a lot of great work with rooftop solar. It's a place that is, is very well positioned to do that. Arizona uh, also here in Texas, um, I think one of the things that I'm proud about as a Texan is that we have a lot of wind production up in the panhandle. Um, it, but all of this makes sense uh, for the areas that we're in. Solar doesn't make sense for maybe Washington state. Um, and, and on the issue of subsidies, I mean, I am not a big subsidy fan. But what we have seen is that there is a case for light, early uh, subsidy um, or alternative forms of energy, right? Things that help these things come to market. But more often than not in this country, we have a bad practice of keeping subsidies in place for industries far beyond the point that they actually need them. This happens in our agriculture industry, which may get me murdered by some, but uh, this, this happens currently with so many different things that have been receiving subsidies for a long time. And they're at the point where they could be sustainable uh, and, and and they are in the market, right? Some of these technologies and things are in the market. They don't really need the subsidy anymore. Um, but also, I would flip that on its head and say that really oil and gas continues to get a massive subsidy um, from, from state governments, from the federal government. Um, I, I mean, that is one area where um, we're, we're kind of still really clinging on to that. And, and obviously, ACC, we, we believe, as I think any rational climate person believes that you can't flip a switch tomorrow and get rid of all oil and gas. Um, as, as much as people would love to transition to 100% renewables you know, by the end of the year, exaggerating a little bit, um, it's just not feasible. There is going to be this. But the question is, how do we make that transition um, equitable? How do we make that transition economically feasible? Um, and ultimately, how do, we, how do we do it to where people don't lose our, their jobs and where we don't lose a level of, of comfort that we get from our energy. Where do you put uh, electric vehicles on the hype efficacy matrix that I've just coined? Well, yeah, uh, that's brilliant that we're, uh, <laughs> uh, um, I mean, certainly very sexy, right? Like, like you see all this coverage for these electric vehicles. Um, I, I, I kind of, I, the electric vehicle thing is difficult because um, there's a big cultural piece to it, right? I have friends who, you know, being in Texas, lifted trucks and fast cars and we're a car state. Um, I, I, I told one of my friends that, you know, eventually NASCAR will probably be all electric. And you would have thought that I insulted their grandmother because of the, the, the defensiveness and just the disgust that that brought up. 
Um, but if you look at the electric vehicle um, technology, it's really advanced in such an interesting way where, number one, it is getting cheaper. So this idea that you know people ripped into um, uh, Secretary Buttigieg about telling people to get electric cars, and I, I generally agree with that, but like electric car is not $50,000, right? There are affordable options out there um, that, that can get people in that. Uh, but then the other piece is that they are becoming more powerful. So we're seeing now models that are going to replace uh, logistic transportation, right? 18 wheelers that can then be electric. But the biggest piece to electric vehicles that people forget is when you plug it in to charge it, what energy is, 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 is it pulling from, right? So we still have a traditional grid that is largely fossil fuels. So electric cars are great, but they're still pulling fossil fuel energy. You may not be filling up with it directly, but in a way you are. And so, you know, there's still a lot that has to be done to transition the grid, as I talked about. Um, but I, I, I think that generally they get overhyped, even though I would, I would love a Tesla, I would love a Rivian. Um, you know, there, there, there's certainly a lot of hype around them. One European political phenomenon that I think is kind of interesting um, to bring it back there for a second is the nature to it, the, the, the extent to which climate has become the lens through which like almost any public policy debate is viewed. And that is not here in the United States yet. Um, I don't think on some issues, it is certainly on others, but do you think that should be the lens through which we judge more of our public policy choices in the United States? Or do you think it's, um, it has like a, an effect of clouding our judgment on things? Or well, can I, I would push back a little and say that you've already seen um, everything being viewed through that lens uh, on the right or on the left. So as I mentioned earlier, Green New Deal is largely a social program. It is social spending. It is not um, climate spending. And the argument there is that you know, climate touches every part of our society. And, and there's some truth to that. But I do think when, when everything is a climate issue, you get away from what actually is the climate, right? When we talk about climate change, we're talking about um, CO2 in the atmosphere and reducing carbon in the atmosphere. So when you add all these layers onto it, people all of a sudden, it's, it's sort of like mission creep, right? People all of a sudden conflate all sorts of things with climate that are not actually climate and, and get us further distracted from what that central you know, objective should be. At the end of the day, we need to get less carbon in the atmosphere. Um, you know, do we do that through a federal jobs guarantee? Some people would argue that, that, that there is a pathway for that. I, I don't see it. And I think most serious policy people want to see it. But there is an argument for that. And I, I think that particularly on climate, remember that Green New Deal was originally a European concept. This came from Europe. And so the way that Europe goes, the U.S., particularly the progressive left in the U.S., will generally follow. So you are benevolent dictator of the United States for a week. You get to enact three policies related to climate. Um, we could limit it to whatever, reducing CO2 in the atmosphere, but you take it however you wish. What are three policies, things that you can, you can cut things off the books, you can remove entire agencies, you can pass a new law. What are the three things you do? It's a lot of power. That's, uh, that's, that's, um, 
That's a good question. So these are going to on on our on our quadrant that we came up with. These are are going to to not be sexy at all. Um, number one, I would build uh, uh, or at least get in motion the building of carbon capture plants. Um, there are not many around the world, uh, and 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 that is uh, a fairly expensive thing right now. But of course, the more that we build, the cheaper they become. So I would do that. I'd plant a trillion trees. Um, and then the third thing that's interesting, I, I, um, I think that for the climate piece, you know, a big thing that's missing from it is we have to empower landowners and sportsmen and wetland owners, the people who are closest to the land and have the most invested in the land to take care of it. And oftentimes because of federal policy, that sounds good. Um, oftentimes they're actually disincentivized to do that. And so I, I would probably, the third one, maybe... What's an example of that? Could you give an example of, say, yeah, someone so who's trying to conserve land who can't? For example, the Endangered, uh, the Endangered Species Act, signed uh, into law by President, by President Nixon. Um, something that, you know, very well-intentioned. Obviously, we need policy around returning species back to, to a healthy population. The challenge with it is that if you are a landowner and you have an endangered species on your property, um, it, it, it essentially it it create it doesn't create incentives to want to protect those species. It, it it makes it to where they face significant fines and significant repercussions for anything happening to that species or or, or any you know change there. Um, and and that's one of those. And when you talk about reforming the Endangered Species Act, people lose their mind. But it's something that if you look at just does it actually incentivize people to do the right things there? Um, sadly, it, it doesn't always do that. Um, so that's an example. I remember working a specific case. I think we were working on with Pacific Legal Foundation where there was a, a, a something called the dusky gopher frog in Louisiana. And a, man, a person couldn't develop on their property because of this frog. But the frog had not been spotted there for 50 years or something like yeah. that. So that that's what you're talking about, right? Just Exactly. Yeah. In, inability to do what you need with your land because of the possibility of maybe um, yeah. for the endangering your species. Does it pass the test of is the same? Like uh, it, there's a difference between does it feel good and does it actually do good? And if it if it feels good but it doesn't do good, uh, I don't I don't necessarily see the point of it. Stephen Perkins from the American Conservation Coalition. You can find their work at www.acc.eco. E C O. Stephen, may your three wishes be granted. Thanks for talking today. Appreciate it, Austin. Thank you.